11 years ago, I was in my basement apartment on Kewatin Avenue in the Young and Eglinton area when I got a call. I had been running a hockey pool, which I had won, and one of the entrants had yet to pay his portion. <laughs> That's always the way. He had an offer. Instead of giving me what he owed, he would come by early the next day to pick me up. There was a soccer game he'd somehow gotten tickets for. How he stumbled upon these tickets for free wasn't clear. At least it is my guess that he didn't pay for them, because the entry fee to the hockey pool was far less than what it would actually cost to gain entry for this event that we would be attending. This was TFC's first ever home game or home match against the Kansas City Wizards. So on a chilly late April day, I walked through the CNE grounds to BMO Field. The tickets were attached to a scarf, I remember that. And this guy, of course, wanted it back after the game, presumably to sell on eBay. But that's besides the point. What I think about that day now is probably best expressed by what I wrote about it then. This is from Thursday, May 3rd, 2007. Last Saturday, I had a chance to travel to the CNE grounds to check out T Toronto FC play in their inaugural match at the newly built BMO Field. I wasn't born when the late Doug Alt hit two homers on the Blue Jays' first opening day in 1977, but now I can be part of Toronto sports history that also took place on a chilly April day at the very same location. Although the end result was a 1-0 loss to Kansas City, the crowd rocked the ground, and it was quite evident BMO Field would be an imposing play place to play for the opposition. The fan base, whose heart beats in the south stands with the U section and Red Patch Boys, were equipped with chants and songs both prepared and drummed up on the spot. One was a chant, All we are saying is give us a goal, to the tune of John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance. It is also quite evident that if TFC's poor passing continues, Mike Shropshire might want to sign up to write Seasons in Hell Part 2 starring TFC as the Texas Rangers and Coach Mo Johnson as Billy Martin. But that's another story. The beauty of what MLSE has created in Toronto FC is not only that they will help draw people to soccer, but are, but are taking in people who need no converting. Fans that avidly follow La Liga, the Premiership, and Serie A can unite and support TFC. Whatever league you watch, whatever club you support, people can support TFC with these inherited traditions of being a fan. My team, for instance, is Liverpool, and I know there's been no comparison between the Reds and TFC beyond the color of their jerseys. I've never been to Anfield, and I'd like to go someday before they shut it down. Uh, I was at that time assuming they were going to shut it down, and I did eventually go three years later. <laughs> However, as I was walking away back after the game to our parking spot along Lakeshore, my imagination ran away with me a little. A little. As O Canada played, the crowd at BMO Field sang at the top of their lungs, many with their TFC scarves held high above their heads. Seeing as how TFC is the lone Canadian team in MLS, could O Canada double as our version of Liverpool's You'll Never Walk Alone to start each match? Could the boisterous section at the south end that was the pulse of the atmosphere all day long and will be for the foreseeable future be the MLS version of the cop? That years from now will be the talk of the MLS. For fans of soccer in North America, it may be a place that you are drawn to by unseen forces, such as the same way I was drawn to LFC as a boy watching Soccer Saturday hosted by Graham Leggett in the late 1980s. 
All of this seems possible because for the first time in a long time, it seems that an ownership group had it right and has it right with soccer in Toronto or football if you prefer. Tradition never was manufactured as it, w- as it is seemingly with every expansion team in every sport. The currents were here and they were channeled. Now flows a sea of red and gray that is certain to rise over time into something very special. Here's the prologue, Nate. I went to a handful of games over the next few seasons, but eventually I tuned out. The team was terrible. I gained passing interest once again after a few seasons, or sorry, a few seasons ago, when many jumped jumped back on the bandwagon, as people usually do when a team gets good. Uh, The giant gap between having a shiny new team in the city to when it actually became a contender was quite simply cavernous. I'm Neil Acharya, and this is Sports Lit, and I'm pleased to bring in Nate Sager to discuss Come On You Reds, the story of TFC, a newly released book by Joshua Cloak that was released a few weeks ago, and I I appreciate it particularly because it filled in that gap that I talked about between when there was a shiny new expansion team to, you know, to when the team got good, there was that that horrible stretch. Uh, it was, you know, you could say around a decade almost of, of the team being really bad. So, Nate, what were your thoughts on the book? Well, no doubt, uh, I guess, Dundurn Press and, and Joshua Cloak, who's been kind enough to join us today. We're probably hopeful that, you know, they'd get a, a big run from TFC again this year. But, you know, every, every, everything has an expiry date in sports. Uh, I think the timing and tide was was definitely right for a, a book about TFC. You think of that those people who really got invested in, in 2007 right off the hop. They were teenagers, 20-somethings. Now they're at that, that age where, where they have disposable income to, to buy books. And when I look at the success arc of Toronto FC and, I guess, the MLS, I mean, it, I mean obviously these things don't go in a straight line. But, Neil, uh, one of your aphorisms I often come back to is, you know, when I'm trying to make sense of how things go is the world gets smaller every day. And I always think the best thing that ever happened for soccer in North America really wasn't even something that happened in North America. It was the English Premier League formed, and you know, and then there was like EA Sports FIFA video game franchise that, you know, suddenly no one wanted to play Madden anymore. Everyone wanted to play FIFA, even if they didn't follow or watch soccer. And then after that, then there were all like, you know, the you know, different explosion in 24 hour sports coverage. Suddenly you needed something to put on in the middle of the day. So here, here's the champions league instead of our 13th rerun today of Kiana's flex appeal. <laughs> uh, you know, those regional sports network wars, I'm sure there'll be a subject of a Ken Burns documentary someday. And so by the time, you know, Toronto FC came around, I think as Kristen Knowles, you know, puts it so aptly in Joshua's book, there was this quote, big, small community that was, looking for a place to happen now so i'm you know really appreciate this book because you know for me soccer was always kind of like linux oh yeah that's a great operating system but i'll have to take your word with it i'm just gonna stick to with windows i mean being like the soccer phobe who always got like threatened when the world cup would you know mm. dominate the news every four years always felt like really just kind of regressive and, and futile but what it got me when you know when tfc had that first home game is like okay this is what soccer is supposed to look like you know they got the fans with the scarves and the chants and I mean, they were on field turf, but they weren't playing on a field that had football lines on it. I think I looked it up. I think the first season of MLS, nine of the ten teams played in football football stadiums. Then the team didn't have a goofy name, such as, like, the Dallas Burn or the Tampa <laughs> Bay Mutiny. So, But how did the creators of the franchise, I mean, how, how did MLSC manage to get, you know, how did they nail that part? And yet, why did it with all the 
MLSE muscle and might behind it and money. <laughs> Why did it take Toronto FC so, so long <laughs> to crack the code of uh, Major League Soccer glory? So that's what, you know, Joshua Cloak has gamely attempted to unpack, and you know, with, with a plume. And he's refreshed us on some, you know, key details of all of uh, Toronto FC's trials and tribulations. Uh, we should plug the fact that I think we just passed the one-year anniversary of since our first one. I think some people think, didn't think we'd get past the second episode. <laughs> and all of those critics are all on limited profile on social media now. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of appropriate because I think the day we recorded our first one was the day that Gord Downey's you know, physical energy was returned to the earth. And Josh has also written a book about the tragically yep. called Escape is at Hand. So kind <laughs> of appropriate here. Uh, uh, that we, he's here to join us and kick around the themes in Come On You Reds, the story of Toronto FC from yep. Dundurn Press. And without further ado, we will bring on, after the break, Joshua Cloak, who is an, uh, best known for his writing with The Athletic Toronto. And he will discuss Come On You Reds, the story of Toronto FC. This is Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya, along with Nate Sager, and we're pleased to be joined by Joshua Cloak, author of Come On You Reds, who we talked about in the intro. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, most sports fans will know you from your coverage uh, of TFC and the Maple Leafs for The Athletic uh, Toronto. Let me backtrack by asking you, first of all, what drew you to sports writing and authorship to begin with? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think... I mean, first and foremost, I grew up in a household that had two or three newspapers delivered every day, um, and that was pretty incredible to just be able to to wake up and, you know, once uh, my dad was done with the sports section, sift through it and kind of just, um, you know, look at look at the different ways that, that sports stories were, were told, and, and um, this was long before I kind of thought about doing it formally, but you you immediately recognize the differences between a, you know, a post-game report that's very cut and dry and, and a, you know, a feature with a, you know, a writer's little photo in the, you know, front of the sports section. And, and it, it occurred to me very early on, um, partly because the only time I'd ever be able to stay awake past my bedtime were for <laughs> Leafs games, um, that, you know, this was the city that, Toronto, that, took its sports really, really, really seriously. And I know that sometimes, you know, Toronto doesn't always, Torontonians don't always think of themselves as, as you know, a, a sports city in the same vein as a Chicago or a Boston. But um, I found that, I found the opposite to be true. I found that, you know, people all across the GTA, even because it's such a spread out city, people cared so much um, about this team and and you know I grew up being a fan uh, of of different teams I grew up being a fan of of a few you know teams in Germany and and you 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 realize that there are different ways to tell stories and and like I said earlier you know you don't just have to tell stories in a very cut and dry manner you can tell stories with fans in mind um, and again being a fan of being a big fan of of a few rock and roll bands and being a big fan of, of a few different teams, you realize that um, if you really want to make your stories resonate, you try to write them uh, critically and you also try to write them uh, with fans 
in mind because these are the people that that come to the games these are the people that 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 really care passionately about these teams so to keep them in mind is is something that that probably was was present throughout the writing of this book as well and indeed that that phrase there is just stuck in my head there the with fans in mind because i think the book opens with like soccer fans on a message board like is an MLS e guy really like lurking on our message board uh I guess that's sort of, you sort of intuited my, my question. How, when, when you were, you know, it takes a long time to make the story short, as Thoreau said. Like, how did you zero in on the structure of the book? Like, what kept you on target during the writing of it? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you want the reporting to speak for itself. Um, and that's something that um, Sean Fitzgerald, one of my editors at The Athletic, has just kind of harped into me from day one. Like, you know... Get out of the way. Let the let the reporting, let the people who are on the ground speak for themselves, um, and and make sure that kind of dictates uh, where the story goes. Um, and I found that you know every single season, TFC had, had you know haven't been around for as long as uh, you know a few of the other big teams in Toronto, but every single season had its own story. M- most seasons for a while there had their own coach. And most seasons had their own vision in terms of, well, here's what we're going to do this year. And this is the new plan. And no, really, this is the plan that's <laughs> going to work, we swear. Um, and so it just made natural sense to kind of structure it like that. Look at every season. Look at the the plan coming into it. And then, again, look at w- where it all went wrong and, and who was impacted, right? Because um, they haven't been around, like I said, as long as a lot of other teams. But that's kind of interesting because then... You know, every season doesn't blend together as as they were. You know, we can just we can call them the Harold Ballard years, <laughs> and that can that can encompass you know a few seasons. You know, and we can call them the Anthopolis years, and that can encompass a few seasons. But with TFC, every single season had its own uh, weird way of unfolding. So it made sense to me to just kind of look at every season uh, on its own. I'm going to skip ahead, actually, Josh and or Joshua. Sorry, and ask you um, with what you just said. How did the timing or lack thereof from the time TFC was awarded a franchise to when they fielded a team affect their, their I guess, the futility of those those not just early years, but well into you know, I guess, a decade in. Well, I mean, every sports team, I assume, has its own uh, group of passionate fans. What I think TFC realized or, or found out very early on that they had a big group of very passionate fans and they kind of, I don't want to say fell backwards into it, but I think everybody uh, in team management was really surprised at how fervent this fan base was. And then when you look at the fact that, well, we're also competing for attention uh, against the Leafs, the Jays and the Raptors, which have, you know, a stranglehold on fans in their own right, um, it became a rush to get things right. I mean, any club, uh, you know, when they want to build towards success, it takes time. Um, But TFC looked at, well, we have this passionate fan base. We can't lose them. And just think of how incredible it could be if we win. And so the rush um, to get things right kind of dictated the way that, that, 
TFC uh, conducted their business early on. They wanted to get things right, right out of the gate. And every coach that I spoke to, uh, every coach except one, took my call, <laughs> and they all said the same thing. I wanted to be the one to bring an MLS Cup to the fans in the South End. I wanted to be the one that could do it because... And you know what? To If you fast forward until... You know, when Michael Bradley was signed, Tim Laiwicki said the same thing to, to Laiwicki, or sorry, Tim Laiwicki said the same thing to Bradley and Javinko. Just wait and see what happens when, when we win. And, and we saw that um, when they did win in 2017, that, you know, an MLS club had a parade down, you know, a, a busy street in Toronto in the middle of December on a Monday to Nathan Phillips Square, and people showed up by the thousands. And, you you know... I don't know if a lot of other MLS clubs um, could get that kind of uh, fervent attention. So uh, Laiwiki was right, um, and the uh, the kind of the belief or the hope of, of all those people in management, all those coaches, it, it was also not unfounded. I mean, they wanted to get things right because they knew if they did, there would be um, a response unlike anything you know that had probably happened in MLS up to that point. Well, just uh, touching on that, the so if you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, Seattle had what four years from the time they got an expansion team to when they fielded it, and that about sounds about right. The and, LA team as and, well, and LA had a lot of time, and Atlanta also had uh, more time than TFC. Right. Um, TFC just wanted to 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 get things going. TFC also had, um, you know, or I shouldn't say TFC, but uh, the under 20 World Cup was also in Toronto and, and it looked like a good opportunity to sell tickets in conjunction with season, you know, early season ticket sales. Right. So you, you know, you can't, you can't really blame them because they sense this wave of right. anticipation and they say, let's go, let's, let's jump on this. But you know, you, you you realize also that a lot of the people, MLSC had a ton of sporting experience. Mm. They didn't have a ton or even a, a fraction of a ton of MLS experience, soccer experience, people in the know that, that had, you know, soccer experience. MLS is an incredibly idiosyncratic league and soccer is an incredibly idiosyncratic sport. Um, <laughs> and the belief was that well we've we've been successful with the Leafs and the Raptors um how could we not be successful <laughs> with TFC um and obviously you know if you you know were around uh, or if you turned on your TV in the mid 2000s you saw how wrong um that belief was right and I guess that maybe segues into what I want to ask what was I mean I think the the wheels were in motion for this book before that MLS Cup win and, and before the, that big parade. But what was the elevator pitch for saying, hey, there's a sellable book about a soccer team in Canada? Because oftentimes, sometimes I'll go in a bookstore and start looking at the sports section, and it's just like, really? More hockey? Like, how, how, did, it, how, did, how did you sort of say this, is, this will work to, to a publisher? Well, um, it, I, I did get lucky. Um, they came to me, Dundurn came to me and said, you know, we, um, we we like your work, and and they had also contacted a few other writers, and and um, I was I was pretty hungry to do something, and so I I you know did everything but stand on the table and say I I, I want to do this book because I know what, and and this isn't to say that that the other um, writers didn't, but I know what 
what soccer could mean to Canadians. And that's not to say it doesn't mean something, but you just, you, you get this sense and throughout TFC's kind of rise and you get this sense now on the verge of 2026 that, that soccer is just, it, it's, the wave is just starting to peak and, and so many people have an interest, but it's, it's there's also, um, you're still battling with, you know, soccer in Europe where, you know, we know these these players, we know these teams as, as global brands, but we don't know, we can't kind of put our own stamp on something unique here. Um, and look, I, I get that, and that was kind of addressed in the early chapters. I mean, I, I when I was a kid playing the game, I would go to, um, it was called Soccer City then in, in, in Whitby, and I remember I'd walk into the facility every time, and there was a this um, this flag, and and I knew it's I knew it was a logo, but I'd never seen that logo before. And I remember asking my dad, I'm like, "Was well, that Toronto soccer team's logo?" And my dad was frozen. He said, "I don't know if Toronto has a soccer team. This would have been in '93, <laughs> '94." And he's like, "I don't know what that is, and if Toronto has a soccer team, I don't know what their logo is." Um, it ended up. Anyway, pick up the book, find out which team it is. Um, <laughs> but um, you, you, you get the sense that there are there's an incredibly fervent um, group of, of soccer fans that all love the sport in their own right, but they just they, they never had something to really attach themselves to. Um, and you know, TFC has has I think taken a lot of people by surprise, taken the league by surprise. So the the pitch was very much just. Let's try and capture this this wave, and and let's let's try and let's acknowledge the fact that there's like you kind of said, Nate. Like let's acknowledge the fact that there is a lot of depth to sports in this city. Um, and I've got nothing against people writing books about the Leafs because they're an institution. I mean, I think there should be more Raptors books. I don't know if there are. Um, I think there should be even more Jays books. I know there's a few. Um, but I think that, you know, we do live in a big sports hub, um, and, and I hope that there's another TFC book. I hope there's another Canadian soccer book down the line, because this is just, to me, that they're like, like I said, soccer is just peaking. And I think when you understand, um, that, you know, the amount of people that, that show up to watch soccer games in the stands doesn't necessarily represent the the love of the sport across the country and the city. Um, so it's a kind of a long-winded answer to a short question, but uh, they came to me, I stood on the table, give me this damn book, and uh, I... Uh, I, I want hope, it. Yeah, I hope people, uh, I hope people are into it. Um, did you find that you you had to find unique ways to, to market this book? Because it's not a hockey book, uh, maybe going to more podcasts or blogs, or was that not the case? Um, I think if you if you write a book, um, and and maybe you're the first, you, you know, you're one of the first books about a subject out there. Uh, inherently, you, you just you want to talk about it a bit more. Um, but in terms of of unique marketing, um, I don't think fate dealt us a, a, a <laughs> fair hand in terms of where I mean we TFC won I'd started writing the book before they won MLS Cup and so you secretly in the back of your mind hope they win just because right. you want an ending to the story um, 
and then the book comes out and people are just exhausted of this team right now. Um, and that's, and that's partly because of, you know, their poor results throughout the MLS season and the fact that they've played so much soccer. I mean, there's been what, 43 days of no TFC over the past two years. Um, so in terms of unique marketing, no, I, I think you just like to, to, to share the, the process because, um, you also, like I said, you, I, I would like to see more people tell their own stories. I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, maybe uh, Writer X or Writer Y should have written a story. And that's great. Like, I would like to see more and more kind of perspectives because my own perspective is quite limited. It's just let's, let's make sure fans are served by this book and let's let the reporting speak for itself. So unique challenges, I, I don't know. I mean, how mu- I don't know how much... Uh, it's it, it's they're, they're books. You have to hustle to make sure that people right. are aware of them. Um, John Molinaro uh, was you speaking of other writers. He was a kind of woven through the fabric of this yeah. of this book. Um, how valuable was he to you? And, and tell us who John Molinaro is. Well, yeah, John Molinaro is the um, I'm, I think his title is chief soccer reporter um, at Sportsnet, and he was at CBC Sports before that. Um, I call him the great-grandfather of (laughs) TFC coverage because there's only one or two reporters, I think him and Neil Davidson of the Canadian press that were there since day one. Um, I admittedly wasn't uh, when TFC started. Uh, I was living in Istanbul at the time, which is another story altogether. Um, But, you know, you you talk to people that have been there since day one and you you ask them about the early days and they kind of go white in the face because it <laughs> brings back some pretty treacherous memories but um no like you said you you want to you want to see how everybody viewed things and and John wasn't the only reporter that I talked to but um it's important that you understand not just how management and players felt about what was happening then but but how the team was being received um I started really covering the team in earnest around um, 2014, 2015. Um, so to, to be able to talk to John, um, was, was interesting because, you know, we can, I can talk to all the coaches as I did, except for one. Um, and they can give me their take, but, uh, you know, to, to understand how this was received and to understand like what it must've been like to cover, a losing team year after year after year. And you're balancing that with the fact that, well, geez, I, I you, you know, in the back of your mind, oh, I, I, I really have to fight for this because I can't assume that people just naturally care about this team. Like even when the Leafs were, 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 were bad, or even, you know, when the Jays are bad, people still will care about this team. It's not, you're not fighting to say, well, if if they're right. bad, people will stop reading, and that right. that was kind of a, a a threat with with a lot of TFC writers for a long time. And, and that's sort of uh, I really what I really enjoyed. Sometimes I thought sometimes this is really a book about like management techniques. I guess uh, like the characterizations of like Precky, uh, you know, being off. He was just kind of off on his own orbit. It seemed like, and then the Ryan Nelson was the guy. Who, Oh, I'm done playing. I guess I'll just go coach in MLS now. I don't really have any ideas. I'm just going to, you know, go by rote. Uh, how much is this book about just the modernization of management in soccer and all pro sports? Well, a term that that um, has kind of become uh, uh, 
a point of contention on Twitter for another sport um, is the idea of, of hockey men or a hockey man, right? Like this idea that, you know, you, you grew up in the game um, and then you, you coach for a while and, and you're kind of, you know, whatever, an old school guy and, and you know what you're doing because you're a hockey man. Uh, that doesn't really exist in soccer because there are so many different approaches to the game. And there's because it's, soccer is such a, a, a global sport. The way that things are done in England is vastly different from the way things are done in Colombia or the United States or, or Japan. But all of those places bring a unique approach to the table. And I think that's what TFC tried very early on was, you know, they started with Mo Johnston, um, who is uh, one of the most well-known Scottish players of, you know, of, of all time. And if you're not familiar with Mo, look up his story because what he did with Celtic and Rangers is, is, was pretty daring stuff back in the day. And, and he had just a very nose-to-the-grindstone mentality and, and let's, find, let's find hard-working players. Um, and that's intangible. Right. Um, and, and you don't really know if that's going to work. And, and you move on to and obviously you're skipping through probably a thousand coaches as I go through. But you go to Aaron Vinter, who's a Dutch coach. And, you know, he believed in young players getting opportunities very, very, very early on, which is very symptomatic of how things work in the Netherlands. And he believed in building from the academy up. Um, and it wasn't about finding players that were hardworking. It was finding players that were very creative on the ball. Um, is either one a better approach? Well, no, because the, neither team made the playoffs, right? But so you, you're right. And then you go, you move forward to uh, Tim Bezbachenko and, and Greg Vanny and Bill Manning, who believed in doing things with MLS success in mind, because both Mo and Aaron Vinter. Um, couldn't get things right. I mean, Mo had success previously, but I, I think neither understood the salary cap restrictions and, you know, the, the way that, again, MLS is such an idiosyncratic league. Uh, Tim Bezbachenko and, and Greg Vanny knew on MLS and, they, and Bill Manning as well. They understood MLS. And, and I think, again, every coach, when you go back, you think, well, maybe if they had stuck with that, that would have been really interesting. Aaron Vinter in particular, like, because now TFC is investing so heavily in their academy. And Aaron Vinter wanted to do that. Um, and that would have been interesting to see how that would have played out. Um, and again, Ryan Nelson, he was a player's coach. Like, he, you know, he understood what players, what modern players go through. And there's value in that. Um Precky wanted to make sure this team didn't fold <laughs> easily. And, and that had been kind of, but he, you know, Precky comes from a, you know, a, I believe it's a Serbian background and he's a really, really hard, hard man. And he's, you know, he had a lot of MLS success and he's still in the game coaching with Seattle. Um, a really, really, really hard guy. And you could argue that back then that's what TFC needed. Um, you could maybe argue that's a bit of what TFC na needs now is just a hardened mentality. So every coach brought something different and, and every coach was kind of informed by kind of their background. And to me, that's, that's really, really interesting because it's a study in how Toronto, a very multicultural city, opened up their doors to different coaches with different approaches. Um, and you, boy, you just have to run the gamut until things work, right? That's 
that's what I enjoyed about the book. I mean, as a sports fan, as a sports journalist, is you know, I followed TFC and had a had a real interest off the top, and then I just you know, like a lot of people kind of just left it to the wayside when they started losing. And I, I felt sure. it filled in a lot of the gaps from people like myself that were initially excited, then kind of tr- fell away and then kind of got back into it once right. they, they started doing well. Yeah. And, and, and you're not alone in that regard. I mean, it's, it, it was, I, I don't envy um, management early on for trying to keep, and they had to raise ticket prices. And they had like what was what was interesting. They would have these town hall meetings, where they would literally sit at the front of a room and allow fans to throw tomatoes at them. Because I mean, this was the, the, they understood that they had to keep these fans. They also had to answer for them. And I know teams do season ticket holder meetings, but there was an intimacy to these um, town halls. Um, and and you know the problem was that you can. Any sports organization, even though this, again, as I said off the hop, this was a book that was written with fans in mind. Management can't cater to fans, and, and management of any club should never make decisions with fans in mind. Uh, so this was a balance that TFC had to kind of walk because they knew that we have the best attendance in the league, but we are continually losing. How long do we think this can last? <laughs> Thankfully, they, there was uh, some teams in this city that that had a habit of losing around that time. Right. <laughs> um, so when was and and uh, this is a question that that was I felt I had to ask because I, I felt there might be two answers to this, but you can you can better better answer it. When was rock bottom? Was there more than one rock bottom for TFC? Was it oh nine? Was it in twenty thirteen? When, when when do you think it was if there was one particular spot at all statistically I, it's funny you asked that i was looking up this morning tfc now sit on 33 points through 33 games and i was just kind of looking while i was eating my uh my cheerios this morning <laughs> looking at well what how will this season in terms of points per game stack up against some of the most dismal seasons 2012 statistically was a, a real real low point um Aaron Vinter was fired and and you know TFC fans were just so sick and tired of the turnover and the DPs that didn't work out I argue and and I might be in the minority here I argue the low point was 2014 was the end of 2014 because Lywicki comes in he makes TFC a priority and he goes big on designated players bigger than and and TFC had had designated players before uh Torsten Frings and he comes in and says we're going to make a splash we're going to get this team uh into a prominent place in the Toronto sports landscape um and we're going to do it by bringing in one of the most hyped players in TFC history and and we're talking about Jermaine Defoe and it was it even though, like, I remember watching his first game uh, in Seattle and he literally scored on his first touch. And I, I think, like, again, like, it, it to, just to, to, to compare that, I mean, if, if you had, if you had, again, if John Tavares comes in <laughs> and literally one times his first shot into the back of the net in right. his first game, people would be losing their minds. 
Defoe goes on to score a second goal on his third touch, and it looks to me like oh, they, they might have gotten it right, and it could not have gone worse. I mean, Defoe had his reasons for wanting out. Um, this team that w- thought, let's, let's sign big players because that's what our fans deserve, just becomes engulfed in even more drama. And then at the end of the season, you're just thinking, well, they... They've kind of, like, to me, that was the point where it felt like TFC, it's like, we, we've kind of done everything. We've done absolutely everything we could. This was the last thing was spend huge on a huge player. And that blew up in our faces. So to me, that's the low point because if you're going to, and we're seeing it in MLS now, like if you're going to sign a big player, um, you better be sure that the results come with it because you won't you only get so many designated players right and eventually fans are going to start saying look at you're raising our ticket prices we know that this player costs a lot of money why couldn't you find a player that you knew wanted to be here <laughs> to me that was the real low point because it was tfc swinging for the fences and saying we want to be taken seriously as a brand in Toronto, and it just didn't work. Michael Bradley did stick around, of course, and there was a few players from that 2014 that were played a huge part in the 2017 win. But to me, the Defoe drama was just something that that was a real low point and also a real turning point for TFC. That's what I was going to say. Um, the was the bloody big deal in the end that Michael Bradley came out of that whole situation, being staying with the team. Yeah, you know, Michael Bradley was, I I should say, he was um, very generous with his time for the book. Um, We spoke for about four hours uh, in L.A. Um, In one sitting? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, it it, it was. um, And it was was interesting to hear how he was kind of sold on the club. And, um, you know, you, you... And I kind of wrote about this at the end of of 2017 uh, when TFC won. I mean, Michael Bradley stayed with the team and delivered a championship to Toronto, and it's a it's a championship that, you know, athletes in and around that time, the Vince Carters, the Roy Hallidays, the Matt Sundins, they could never deliver to Toronto, but, you know, they had a captain that, that stayed with it and became uh, the face of the club in a lot of ways. And, and I know he's kind of... a He's kind of a polarizing figure, and I get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if 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 anything, that if if there's any highlight to the bloody big deal, it's it's the fact that <laughs> that Michael Bradley stuck around and really grew into his role in Toronto. Because something that I don't think gets talked about enough is when Michael Bradley was signed um, in Toronto. I think that there were some people within TFC that didn't really understand who Bradley was and how to best utilize him. And you saw that earlier when uh, Julian de Guzman signed in Toronto as a designated player. He believed that, you know, fans and management were sold on a a goal-scoring midfielder, and he was the exact opposite. And Michael Bradley talks about how in 2014, 2015, and even parts of 2016, he was being asked to do everything in the midfield, defensive, central, and, and attacking midfield. Uh, it was only in 2017 where he had players around him that allowed him to play that defensive midfield role, which is where he thrives, that, that TFC really, really had you know, uh, their, their best season of, of all time. And 
going back to Jermaine Defoe, it was a bloody big deal for, for those that don't know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please do, because before that you were getting players that were past their prime coming from, from Europe, and Defoe still was only 31. He still had something to give. Is that correct? Is that oh, getting yeah. a, landing a player like that was why it was such a big deal to get a player like that to the MLS? Well, it was kind of believed that believed by some that he you know still had a legitimate chance of of cracking England's 2014 World Cup squad which would have been huge like to have a, a, an English striker right you know on TFC um don't forget TFC also for a time had uh Brazil's goalkeeper uh from that 2014 team he was on loan but um, anyway, yeah, that, that would have been a, a, a really big deal. The, the retirement league thing is something that uh, I struggle with. I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I kind of got caught with egg on my face really late last night. Um, I'm sure you're both familiar with uh, old takes exposed, that, that Twitter. So I got caught by them because in May of this year when the the rumors of Wayne Rooney coming to MLS, coming to DC United, really, really took hold, and it looked like it was a a sure thing. I tweeted something about how it was bad for DC United, um, and if, if, because, and Rooney was deteriorating very quickly as a player in England with Everton, and if he continued to deteriorate, it would be bad for MLS because it would look like, you know, this, uh, it, it would only add fuel to the retirement league fire. Right. He has, I don't want to say single-handedly, but he has transformed a DC United team that was an afterthought this year into a, a, a they qualified for the playoffs last night. And I got caught with egg on my face, uh, rightfully so. So I think that the the idea of a retirement league is, is kind of interesting because sometimes you see players come over here um, and they just set the league on fire. It's Laton. Um, Bastian Schweinsteiger scored in his first game, and you could argue about... I don't think he's been utilized correctly by Chicago, but that's another story. Um, and, and But then you have... Um, you know, sometimes the Lamparts and Gerrards don't work out. So it's kind of... It, it, it's We shouldn't be painting um, European stars all with the same brush. They all come over here for different reasons, uh, and we shouldn't assume that just because you're... Uh, you know, player that is 30 or over and have had success in Europe, that's a bad thing for the league. Um, Tim Lewicki, he talked about him earlier. He was obviously instrumental in the bloody big deal and turning the team around. So what I wanted to do is to get you to explain a little bit about who he is, his background, and then, I don't know, Nate, if you want to hold the mic up for Josh, well, could you read a little for us from the book? Sure, okay. yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, first of all, yeah, let him explain who Tim. Oh, well, well, yeah. I mean, if if you're familiar with with Toronto sports in the last ten years, you should know Tim Laiwiki. Who Tim Laiwiki was? I mean, Tim Laiwiki was instrumental in bringing uh, David Beckham to the LA Galaxy. Um, Tim Laiwiki, who's with AG Sports in in Los Angeles, um, I, the 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 best way I can sum up Tim Laiwiki, who was president of MLSC and who came in to MLSC, I believe, in 2013 um, and made TFC and the Raptors a priority. This is the man that, that brought Brendan Shanahan in, who I 
think is as about as instrumental as anybody in the Leafs turnaround. This is a man that brought Masai Ujiri in, who is again about as instrumental as anybody in the, in you know this current kind of Raptors team. Um, and Tim Laiwiki comes in and he makes TFC a, a priority. And I think really fans that 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 understand how things work with TFC have a lot of respect for him because. He, you didn't have anybody at MLSC that had put them at the forefront. And his idea from the beginning was, let's spend big on TFC right now. Let's make them a legitimate brand in Toronto. Let's invest millions of dollars in players. And then eventually, we should be able to recoup that investment by the fact that you will have so many more young players wanting to come play for TFC. Because... You know, Toronto is a soccer hub. I grew up on the fringes of... I grew up in Oshawa, and we would consistently get our asses handed to us by these teams from Toronto that were so, so good, and there's so much young talent in Toronto. But for a long time, a lot of these young players didn't want to go play for TFC's academy because they didn't look at TFC as a legitimate option for their careers. Laiwiki's plan, I think, was to say, let's invest heavily, let's make TFC a, a reputable brand, and then hopefully we'll have these young players come to play in Toronto, and then years, years down the road, we'll be able to have bring these young players in at a fraction of the cost. And we're slowly starting to see that with the Ryan Telfers and Liam Frasers of the world. But um, Tim Laiwiki wanted to see success with, with Toronto FC, and, and it would have been very easy to just, you know, cater to the Leafs fan base and, and, and go big on the Leafs. But um, the work he did with TFC to kind of legitimize it and put the right people in place, because he kind of cleaned house as well. Um, and it, it's funny, to, to I don't know if it's in the section you're, you're going to want me to read, but talking to a few TFC staffers about him, the, the best way I can summarize uh, Liewicki is, is the way that someone else summarized him. He pisses charm, which is just, <laughs> you look at just how he, he, he made people believe that TFC could be great. And if you were, if you were there for the bloody big deal press conference, it was hard not to be swayed by his vision. And it took a while. Um, and there were a few missteps along the way, um, but they got there. And, and Laiwiki was also instrumental in finding the right people to kind of succeed him. I mean, he he had he wanted Tim Bezbachenko in place. He knew he was a soccer wonk who came from the league office and understood the league and understood the ins and outs of the league. And that's someone that they had never had kind of steering the ship before. Uh, so I think it, his influence um, cannot be understated. Without further ado, Joshua Cloak on Tim Laiwiki from Come On You Reds. Yeah, you know, it's, it's highlight, yeah, from the highlight to the highlight. Tim Laiwiki arrived in late April 2013, and he will f- never forget the look on Jamie McMillan's face. Laiwiki was already in the middle of cleaning house at Toronto FC when McMillan, the director of team operations, walked into his office with a face as long as the club's list of losses. We're embarrassed to tell people where we work, Laiwiki remembers her saying. As the newly hired president and CEO of MLSC, Laiwiki had been brought in to deliver stability and success to franchises that sorely lacked lacked it. Having served as the president and CEO of AEG, which maintains ownership either totally or in part of three sports franchises that had won 
10 championships under his 17-year watch, Laiwiki had the results to back up his boastful, aggressive demeanor. He'd made a career of getting what he wanted and delivering results, doing so with a seemingly endless supply of charm delivered through an almost enchanting Midwestern accent. Was he charming? I put to one TFC employee. He pisses charm, they replied. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Laiwiki believed successful franchises had to have four key elements, a great fan base, a vibrant market, resources, and an ownership willing to spend. And finally, a talented leadership team of people who are like-minded and ambitious. It was that final component that, in Laiwiki's eyes, was lacking at TFC. So Laiwiki, the self-described glutton for punishment who likes to turn things around, got to work. We're going to be just fine, he assured McBillan. We're going to get this right. Laiwiki spent his first months observing how the club operated. What he saw was a club that had become isolationist, beaten down by years of losses on the pitch and reluctant to open the doors to yet another salesman passing, passing through with a plan tucked in his briefcase. So much so that Laiwiki saw a club not utilizing the resources they already had that could set them apart in MLS. They wanted to be separated from Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, and many within Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment wanted nothing to do with TFC because they saw it as a very strong negative, said Laiwiki. To Laiwiki, as important as Payne's... We're talking about Kevin Payne, uh, past president of TFC. As important as Kevin Payne's experience in MLS had been, he saw an executive whose, quote, heart wasn't really into it. And as to direction, the club was in an ocean with no direction, and to Laiwiki, no real purpose. Payne had previously worked under Laiwiki at AEG as managing director of AEG Soccer, originally tasked with six different MLS clubs, clubs as part of the league's ownership approach. Payne was well aware of Laiwiki's ambition and tried to quell that ambition in one of their first meetings in Toronto. One of the great things about Toronto was that we didn't necessarily need to spend crazy sums of, of money on big-name players to be successful, Payne remembers telling Laiwiki. He believed the club's audience was sophisticated enough to appreciate good soccer for what it was, and if the team had success, they would support it whether that included household names or not. And quote, and that's not the way Tim wanted to do things. While Payne had slow, wanted to build slowly and methodically with the hopes of long-term success, he saw Laiwiki as an executive driven by immediate success and splashes in the market. Says Payne, if you think of the club like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, we wanted to be careful that we don't hang a big shiny ornament on the tree just to see it droop down to the ground. And that tempered approach from the club at the top, from the top of the food chain, excuse me, eventually bled into TFC's identity as a club and what they could become. Laiwiki believed Payne's approach had undermined the work put in every day by all the employees clamoring for direction. And I think it scared everyone away except for me, said Laiwiki. I loved it. I saw it as an opportunity to get it right. Laiwiki began trying to get his employees to rediscover that hustle of a startup that had defined the club early in their existence. The culture was defined by the people that had always been there, he said. We kind of got back to the culture that had been there in the early years, but with an infrastructure and a leadership on the team side that allowed us ultimately to succeed. And that's, that's Tim Laiwiki, I guess, in a nutshell. And I, what I particularly found interesting was in, when you described what he did and he stuck around for about four months and just watched, that seems exactly what Brendan Shanahan almost did, was sit or, kind of watch before he made any moves and then go, go in and... and, and 
really clean house. And that was something that perhaps had been, excuse me, missing with a lot of the clubs, um, kind of coaches and and management during those, those years of, of turnover, people would come in and just say, here's the way we're going to do it right now, this way. And we're we're not, I'm not going to wait and see like the way that things operate. I'm going to make a change because this is what I think needs to get done right away. And, and that's how, you know, this club became known as, as, as one that was defined by its turnover, right? Nate, I, I'm going to let you uh, have the mic in a second. I have one final question uh, before we give Josh our, uh, or Joshua sorry, our parting gift. Um, and one of the other gifts I'll give you is I'll make sure I call you Joshua. Sorry. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, so TFC now has a title. Uh, that's for now. Yeah, they, they they have a title for now. So they've 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 reached that point in their trek uh, in the trajectory of their of their existence. Is is the big challenge now sustaining a winning culture here? Well, yeah, it's 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 Pat Riley's disease of more. Right. Once <laughs> you get to the top of the mountain, um, getting back um, either isn't or as enticing. Or the way that you got to the top of the mountain isn't the way you get to the top of the next mountain. Um, the challenge for TFC moving forward is just in, in the short term, how do you manage a club that's aging? I mean, this is a team with, a, with in, in my opinion, a very talented core of players that obviously can win in MLS because we saw it less than 12 months ago. Um, this is a team that's now one year older. Michael Bradley, Sebastian Javinko, Josie Altador, which up until, you know, a year ago was regarded as, as the best kind of or the most talented group of designated players in MLS. They're all over 30. Their contracts are all up at the end of 2019. So to me, the challenge is how do we get the most out of an aging core? Because it's very... it's very difficult um, in soccer where the draft is not nearly as prominent as it is in other sports. Players are bought and sold and trades just are not as, as, as common and and they're used, but they don't make a big impact the way that, that buying and selling of players. uh, and, And a lot of that is determined or a lot of that is impacted by contracts. How do we get the most out of an aging core that has one more year left on its you know, contracts before we decide what direction we want to go in. Because I firmly believe there's enough in this club, if they are rested and healthy, that can win. They will need to add pieces. They will need to add, you know, a center back because I don't think Drew Moore is going to be back next year. They need to get organized in the back because they were leaking goals this year. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe they're on pace to allow more goals this season than that dreadful 2012 season when sometimes it looked as if there was no goalkeeper between the the sticks. Um, They need to slowly inject youth into this team as well because they can't just, you know, stop at the end of 2019 and say, okay, great, here's, you know, 11 players from our academy. That's not going to work either. Um, So the challenge is, is making sure that these aging players stay healthy because I, I don't think anyone could have predicted just how badly injuries could have impacted the team this season. Just because we're under a time crunch, switching gears, um, Bayern Munich plays uh, tomorrow in Champions League. Yep. 
Are you going to watch the game? Yes. They were playing AEK Athens. Um, I did some research, and I kind of copped out. And I know a good way to watch soccer is with booze. Okay. And so we got you a German booze pack. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Very kind. Neil, Nate, thank you very much. What do we got here? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a look, and do you want me to describe? Yes, please, please. I'll see if, hopefully I've had some of it. Let me pick this apart here. This is great. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> no problem. This? <laughs> this is a Dachshund Pinot Grigio. Okay. Not exactly high-end, but it is from Germany. Which was my requirement when I when I bought it. Apparently, maybe maybe the label. No, no, no. I'm I'm maybe trying to figure out where it's it's from. <laughs> it's from German, so it's got to be good. From Germany, so it's got to be good. Yeah, a couple of beers for you and your wife, perhaps. Wow. So this is a a, a Weissbier, uh, which is a Bavarian uh, Weinstefana, the world's oldest brewery. Um, again, comes from comes from Bavaria or Bayern. Uh, so you know it's got to be good. Um, Vice beer is the kind of stuff that, that goes, you know, a lot of times Bayern matches kick off at, at 9.30 a.m. And, and Vice beer is a, a, a heavy beer, despite its kind of lighter color. Uh, so that's kind of a good morning beer. So um, uh, That's the other one's the same. So you got two of the same. Okay, well, this is, this is incredible. This brewery has been around since, Wow. <laughs> I don't even know how. How do you? How would you say that? Ten forty. Oh man, I, I have no idea. That's in, uh, that's incredible. But no, it's uh, this is this is great stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, on behalf of Nate and myself, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with the the rest of uh, the tour with uh, the book tour. The the book is "Come On You Reds," and it was once again when when was the actual, October six? October six is when it came out. Go and grab yourself a copy. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you.